This morning we want to study the prayer of the disciples in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. After Peter had appeared uh, at trial, after Peter and John had appeared before the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin at the trial and had given that answer, then they let them go. Let's read verse 21, Acts chapter 4. Let's read Acts 4.19. Here's the answer of, Paul, of Peter and John. Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, rather than unto God, you judge. You answer the principle. The principle's obvious. So said Peter in verse 20, Therefore, we cannot morally but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when the Sanhedrin had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all the men glorified God for that which was done. Now we come to the last part of this first opposition. Point number five, the prayer of the disciples. Verses 23 to 31. Begin at verse 23, let's read it. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. As a matter of fact, they did three things. Verse 23, they reported what had happened to the disciples. And then the second thing which they did in 24 to 30, they prayed. And then the third thing which they did in verse 31, well, what is it at the end of verse 31? They witnessed. They witnessed. So they did three things. First of all, they reviewed with all the disciples back in that upper room what had happened to them. Secondly, they prayed. Then third, they witnessed. That was their response to the command of the Sanhedrin. Don't preach anymore. So what did they do? Number one, they went back and reported what had happened. They said, we need the mind of God in this, so let's pray. So secondly, they all prayed together and asked God to give them wisdom and boldness to preach. And then third, subject to the law of God, they witnessed. Verse 23, so being let go, they went to their own company, probably in the upper room, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said them. The chief priests and the elders is a term for the Sanhedrin. So after reviewing with all the other disciples in that upper room what had happened to them, verse 24, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody was praying audibly at the same time. When it says they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, I think what that means is that, that they were all praying together, but one man was praying audibly, and the rest of them were joining in prayer. That's the way we pray. That means, by the way, may I make a very practical suggestion, that when we have public prayer, whoever's praying ought to stand up and pray loud enough so that we can all hear, and we can all join our hearts when that person's praying. Have you ever been in a service where somebody has prayed so quietly you couldn't hear them pray? And you went to sleep? <laughs> well, <clears throat> when you pray, you know, you ought to stand up publicly. This is a kind of a practical thing. And if you're in the front, perhaps turn around a little so your voice will carry out there. The reason for that is not that you want to be heard by men, not that at all. But you want a certain situation in which other people can join their hearts with you in prayer. And by the way, when, this is another little Shakespearean aside. When you pray publicly, try to avoid using the word I. I pray thee. I ask thee. I want thee. I thank thee. Use the word we. 
Because when we're praying publicly, we're not only voicing what's on our heart uh, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we're praying, we're voicing the aspirations of everybody. So we ought to use the word we, not I. We pray thee. And when a person prays and prays in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and that's, that prayer is filled with thanksgiving, for which we can thank God, and that prayer is filled with petitions that are created by the Bible themselves. When we pray for the things that the Bible tells us we ought to do, then we're praying according to the will of God. You know, there's a passage over in James 5 that tells us that we ought to pray according to the will of God. And if we do pray according to the will of God, then God hears us. What is the prayer according to the will of God? Well, the will of God is found in the Word of God. So prayer according to the will of God is prayer according to the word of God. And God will always answer prayer according to the will of God. That is the word of God. Well, you say, what is a prayer according to the will of God? Well, God wants my sanctification. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. So if I pray, Lord, make me more holy, or publicly in prayer together, Lord, make us more holy, then God's going to answer that prayer, see? Because that's prayer according to the will of God, which is prayer according to the word of God. Prayer according to the will of God is not something that I feel is right, not even something I think is right. Prayer according to the will of God is prayer according to the word of God. So whatever God tells me in his Bible, whatever God promises me, Whatever God commands me, I can pray according to that command and promise, and I'm praying according to the will of God. Now, I'm a young fellow, and, uh, you know, and I fall in love with a girl, and I say, oh, Lord, I would like to be married to that girl. I love that girl. I want to marry that girl. That's not necessarily a prayer according to the will of God, because the Bible doesn't tell me one whether or not I should marry. The Bible doesn't tell me, number two, whom I should marry except to marry in the Lord, marry a Christian. See? So I don't need a little more evidence than that. That's why God gives me sanctified common sense. You see, if I'm going to marry a girl to see her relationship to her daddy, the girl's marrying a boy, for that girl to look at the relationship between her prospective fiancé and his mother. God gives me common sense to look at these things, then pray to him to close the door. It's not the right door. But if I pray according to a command or promise in the Bible, I'm praying according to the will of God. Praying according to the will of God is not something which I feel, or not something which I think, or not simply something on my conscience. Praying according to the will of God is praying according to a promise or a command in the will of God. Well, you say, if I feel that this, if I, after much prayer, feel that this is the right step, <clears throat> then how should I pray? Then you ought to pray, oh God, I believe that this is the right thing to do. I ask thee to give this to me if it is thy will. And all prayer ought to be conditioned according to the will of God. But if the Bible tells it to me, I know it's the will of God. The Bible says, don't marry an unbeliever, which he does. 
then I don't have to pray about that at all. Now, if the Bible tells me to live a sanctified life, then I have to pray that God will give me his grace and power and enable me to live that kind of a life. But I don't have to pray whether it's right or wrong, and that's praying according to the will of God. What is the prayer according to the will of God? The prayer according to the will of God is the prayer according to the word of God. And our prayers, <coughs> may I say, <coughs> pardon me, ought to be filled more with the word of God. If they're filled more with the word of God, then there's a greater probability they'll be answered because their prayers according to the will of God. Now, here's a great prayer. They all lifted up their hearts together. It doesn't mean they all were talking at the same time. But they prayed with one accord because whoever was leading in prayer spoke loud enough and prayed biblically enough that they could all join their hearts in prayer. Matter of fact, about a third of the prayer is filled with quotations from Scripture. Now, here's the prayer which they followed, and it follows three things. First of all, there's an invocation. Secondly, there's a petition. And third, there's an answer. Now, let's see if we can see those three things, and then we'll go back and look at them. May I ask you to open your Bible, if you don't have it open, look at chapter 4, verses 4, chapter 4, verses 24 to 28. First, the invocation. To invoke means to call upon. They called upon God. When they heard that they lifted up, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God who hast made the God of creation. Verse 25, who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, who hast said, the God of revelation. And verses 27 and 28, for a truth against thy holy child Jesus, who thou hast anointed both Herod, Pontius, Pilate, and so on, were gathered together to fulfill what you predicted in 25 and 26. That is the God of fulfillment. They invoke God. They call upon God in three capacities. The God of creation, verse 25 and 26, 24. Who asked me? The God of revelation, 26 and 27. Uh, 25 and 26, and the God of fulfillment, 27, 28. Now, let's look at those. Here they call upon the name of God. They use the word Lord. This is not the normal word that's translated Lord in the Bible. The normal Greek word is K-U-R-I-O-S, Kyrios. This word is D-E-S-P-O-T-E-S, from which we get the word despot, despotic. And sometimes in the Bible, God is called by that term, despotic, despot. Or as Dr. Armitage used to say, the beneficent despot. And uh, when I'm around people that have never heard that, I use that as though I thought of it. <laughs> when as a matter of fact, I didn't think of it. The beneficent despot. I think that's a magnificent turn of a phrase. The beneficent despot. That speaks of God's almighty power and sovereignty. And they address him, Lord, despot. Thou art God. Now notice, thou art God who hast made. That's creation. Look at 25. Thou art the same God who, by the mouth of thy servant David, what's the verb there? Hast what? Hast said. The God of creation and the God of revelation. 
Then in 26 and 27, 27 and 28, he tells us without using the verb itself, he tells us how God fulfilled the prophecy given in Psalm 2. That's the God of fulfillment. So Peter calls upon God in three capacities. Or I should say they all call upon God. The God of creation, the God of revelation, and the God of fulfillment. Now let's look at these three. First of all, the God of, of creation. Verse 24, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God who hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all them that, and all that is in them. Here's the God of creation. Here they acknowledge God's sovereignty. And the whole point of acknowledging uh, God's sovereignty is that they wanted to acknowledge that whatever God did with them in, this, in these circumstances, God was doing sovereignty. He had the power to do so and the right to do so. The point here is that God is sovereign. He's the God who created all things. And by inference, he sustains all things. Therefore, God creates all things, and he sustains all things, and he's sovereign. And he can do whatsoever he wants to do. May I suggest to you that you write down the passage, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Nehemiah 9, 6. Now, we won't write there, but uh, we won't look there. But that passage gives to us the two great activities of God in relationship to this universe. Well, while we're there, let's look. I see some of you sneaking a look. Look over Daniel chapter 9, very quickly. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, my boys used to tell me that this was one of the shortest men in the Bible because he was only Nehi, you know, Maya. Until they found out about Bildad the Shuhite. <laughs> All right. Now, you'll catch that in a while. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Here are the two great activities of God in this universe. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven. What tense is that? Past tense. Thou hast made heaven. Past tense. That's creation. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven and heavens of all their hosts, the earth and all that are in them, the seas and all that's in them, and thou preservest them all. What is that tense, thou preservest? That's what God is doing now. Now we call those two activities of God creation and providence. And if you haven't circled those words, and maybe you've had it before, you ought to circle those words, thou hast made and thou preservest. Those are the two great works of God in this world. Thou hast made creation. Put in the past tense because God isn't doing any more creating. That work's over. He did that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God isn't creating any more matter. Well, you say Jesus turned the water into wine. Yes, he did. But of course, those are miracles. And he used pre-existing materials even when he did that. But thou hast made Genesis 1 and 2. That's creation. But when God created everything, when he finished it, God didn't simply invest this universe with absolute natural law and turn it loose to run by itself and then went off on a vacation. And Thomas Jefferson believed that. And Tom Paine believed that. And Benjamin Franklin believed it. Till near the end of his life, 
he reassociated himself with the Presbyterian Church of that time. But for a while, even Benjamin Franklin believed it. That was a very popular theory in the days of the American Revolution, called deism, the belief that God, a sovereign God, created this, this universe, invested it with absolute natural law, and then turned it loose to run by itself, and never interfered in the course of nature. Now, if God never interfered in the course of nature, that rules out miracles. And if miracles are ruled out, that rules out the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection. No miracles, no virgin birth, no bodily resurrection, no supernatural Jesus. And that's what Tom Paine. Tom Paine was not an atheist, he was a deist, as was also Thomas Jefferson. But the Bible teaches us that God not only created all things, but keeps them all going, sustains them, governs them, carries them forward to a predetermined end. And you wouldn't be sitting there and breathing were it not for the providence of God who controls and rules all things. Now, in Acts chapter 4, the apostles, the disciples are addressing God in that capacity. Thou art the sovereign God who does whatsoever thou choosest to do, both in creation and providence. Let's go back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, the second capacity in which the disciples address God is the God of revelation. Not only the God of creation, verse 24, but also the God of revelation. Verses 25 and 26. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the nations rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, that's a quotation from the second psalm. The second psalm was written by David. It's anonymous in the second psalm, but we know here from this one that it's written by David. Now, who wrote Psalm 2, according to verse 25? David did. Who else said it? Who else said it? God said it. But God said it to use the mouth of David, didn't he? God said it, David said it. David wrote it, God said it. God spoke it, David wrote it down. So this Bible which I have in my hand is both the word of man and the word of God. You know this is the debate today here in America, the debate on inspiration. What do we believe about inspiration? Well, I believe that this Bible is both God's word and man's word, that God spoke and men wrote, that God guided them in writing, and yet they wrote. Or as we define verbal inspiration, and I believe in verbal inspiration, and I believe that the Bible is inerrant. I believe that God, a perfect God, would only issue a perfect word. So as creation came perfect from the hands of God, so the Bible, what inspired, all of it inspired, came perfect from the hand of God without any mistake. And inspiration, verbal inspiration, simply means that, uh, <clears throat> that the Bible was written by men uh, who, though permitted the exercise and use of their literary talents and abilities and research, yet wrote under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the result being in the original manuscript, a perfect and errorless 
revelation, recording of that revelation God desired to give unto men. That tells us that the Holy Spirit guided the men. He was the superintending editor. That tells us also that men were permitted to use their literary talents and abilities. We don't believe in the typewriter theory. We don't believe that men were automatons. Peter could use his vocabulary. Moses, perhaps, kept a travel diary and used it. Luke engaged in research. He studied many. You know, there were dozens of lives of Christ floating around, only four inspired, but others written. And Luke researched and talked to the apostles and talked to Paul. And on the basis of his research, he wrote Luke and Acts. And God permitted the use of their literary talents and their literary abilities and their own experience with Psalms and their research. But when they sat down to write, the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21, Pheromenoi, carried them along. Same word that Herodotus, the Greek historian, uses in his description of Greek history, especially the Battle of Salamis Bay. Just the boat according to Herodotus, were borne along on the Aegean Sea, and he uses the same word in the same tense. So the writers of the Bible were borne along by the Holy Spirit to a destination of the Spirit's choosing, that is, the completion of their book. They wrote. They were used, allowed the use of their literary talents and, and abilities, and yet at the same time, although they wrote, they were guided by the Holy Spirit, and he protected them from error and saw to it that they expressed in their own words precisely what he wanted them to say. Now, if we believe in the miracle of the divine and the human perfectly in Jesus, we ought not to have any trouble in believing the union of the human and divine perfectly in the Bible. See, the same miracle in both cases. And if I have no problem with the miracle of the hypostatic union, the union of the divine and human natures in one person in Jesus, then I ought not to have any trouble with the union of the divine and human in the Bible. And God spoke, David wrote. The Bible is both God's book and it's David's book. But I don't believe that it has any error. I believe that God spoke and when he spoke, he did not stutter. I believe that the book I have. Now, that doesn't mean I can solve all the problems. There's some I can't solve. If I could get back 2,000 years, I think I'd probably get enough information to solve it. Can't solve all. But that doesn't trouble me. I believe, I believe the Bible is God's word in God's word. When God spoke, he didn't stutter. The Bible is perfect. And as Jesus said, thy word is true. And I have no trouble coming to the Bible and believing it. You know, they're rewriting all our history textbooks. 200 years ago, the medical textbooks told us to squeeze blood out of a person. Today, put it in. They're changing all sorts of textbooks in all areas of labor and vocation but they aren't changing the text of the Bible. doesn't need any updating. Now, you need to update the textbooks according to the Bible, but not the Bible. Did you see that article in the press cemetery last night, what's taking place, a science teacher out at the University of San Francisco, 
excoriated because he had the audacity to teach science uh, from the viewpoint of a creationist. And he was being excoriated by his colleagues in the press cemetery last night. Well, the uh, Bible says here that God spoke by the mouth of his servant David. And he said in verse 25, why did the nations, that is the Gentile nation, race, and the people, that's Israel, imagine a vain thing. The vain thing is that they could successfully oppose God. That's the vain thing. Verse 26, the kings of the earth, that's Pilate and Herod, stood up, and the rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's the God of Revelation. Now, was that psalm fulfilled? Well, 27 and 28 tells us how that psalm was fulfilled. So he's the God of fulfillment. Verse 24, indeed, against thy holy child Jesus. See, the psalm said there's a clue to it, the last statement of verse 26 and the first statement of verse 27. What is the preposition that's common to both the end of verse 26 and the first part of 27? What is the preposition that's common? Against, the psalm said, verse 26, against his Messiah. That's prophecy. Verse 27 begins fulfillment. For indeed, against, against thy holy servant Jesus. That predicted Messiah is Jesus. And as the prophecy indicated, they'll be gathered together against his Messiah. So, in fulfillment, Verse 27, or indeed, against thy holy servant Jesus, thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the nations, and the people of Israel were gathered together freely, not coerced. They were gathered together freely, but they were gathered together to do precisely what your hand, power, and your counsel will determine before to be done. What did they do? Exactly what God predicted they would do and exactly what God planned for them to do in eternity past. Was to say if God predicted it and planned it, then they must have been automatons when they did it. No, not at all. What they did, they did freely. Although it was predicted and decreed. Now I want you all to look up here and listen. You may go asleep Next five minutes, but listen carefully. Here's the problem we face everywhere in the Bible. And when we sit down to it, face it in our, own, in our own personal lives. Does God know all things? Yes. Did God make a plan in eternity past? Yes. If intelligent people make plans, and they do, and God is infinitely intelligent, and he is, then God made a plan. And that plan included the falling of a sparrow and the hairs on your head. Problem in some of us? See, not much of a problem in others. So he knows all things. See, God knows all things. Now, one or two of you I can't tell because you're wearing a toupee. But, uh, and I suppose he knows the hairs of a toupee anyway, but I'm not sure. But anyway, he knows the hairs of your head and the fall of the sparrow. God knows all details. He knew them from eternity past. All the events in my life were planned by God in eternity past. What Pilate, Herod, and Sanhedrin did was they did whatsoever God, God's 
his will uh, ordained them to do. Verse 28, to do whatsoever thy hand, power, and thy counsel will determine before to be done. God determined eternity past. Does that mean that therefore they were autonomy? Not at all. What Pilate did, he did freely because he wanted to get off the hook and he didn't like this man Jesus. What the Sanhedrin did, they did freely. And because they did it freely, they were therefore guilty. Guilt implies two things. A revelation of a law and the free moral agency of the agent. Both are true. They knew what they should do. And when they did it, they were free moral agents. When I was saved, when I trusted Christ, I trusted him freely. God didn't pick me up by the scruff of the neck, drag me in. I responded freely to the offer of the gospel. But God knew about it, and it was within his plan in eternity past. God is sovereign. He foreordains all things. Yet at the same time, when I do them, I am free. I do them freely. I do them because I choose to. And if I refuse Christ, I go to hell. I go there, not because God foreordained it, but because I chose to go there. I'm responsible. How do you put the two together? I don't know. And nobody does know, especially the man who says, I do know. See? Nobody knows how. They're both there. They're both there. They're both part of the Bible. See? God's sovereignty, God's coordination, certainty. On the one hand, my freedom as a free moral agent, and therefore my responsibility for my act, both in the Bible. Or as I teach the students, and they flunk if they don't know it. An event can be both certain and free. Certain from God's part, free from my action. See? Now let me also say, by way of an addendum, that although events are both certain and free, let me also say, and this needs to be said in Memphis today. This needs to be said in Memphis today. That is Charles Hodge said, and I wish some of the people in Memphis today would read a little more from Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge was one of the great outstanding theologians of the 19th century at Princeton Seminary. Charles Hodge said somewhere, the ending of his discussion, the decrees of God, the rule, R-U-L-E, the rule of a Christian's duty is not the decrees of God, but the commands of God. The rule of a Christian's duty, what I am to do, the rule of a Christian's duty is not the decrees of God, the plan of God, but the command of God. Can I solve the problem of election predestination? No, nobody can. That's a mystery. I believe it. It's taught in the Bible. I can't solve it. But that's not my responsibility. You know what my responsibility is? Acts 16.31. Why should I pray? Why should I pray? One very simple answer. Because God commands it. I don't need any other reason. I don't know how... My praying fits in with the plan of God. I don't need to solve that. Both of them are true. God plans, I pray. But 
my responsibility is not the plan of God, except to know it, believe it. My responsibility is the command of God. God commands me to pray. What about witnessing? What about witnessing? What if this man is one of the elect? What if this man is God? Should I carry the gospel overseas or should I not? If God knows who will be saved. I don't need to worry about that. See, I got a command. You know what that command is? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You shall be witnesses unto me, both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, under the outermost part of the earth. That's the command of God. My responsibility is to the command of God, not to the decrees of God. I believe the decrees of God. I believe in election. I believe in predestination. I believe them because they're Bible terms. That's why I believe them. I don't understand them. But after having studied them, and I study them for many years, after having studied them and believe in them, I still come back to the fact that my responsibility is to trust Christ and to carry the gospel and to pray and to lead a holy life. When I stand up before God at the judgment seat of God, He's not going to examine me according to the decrees. Though I believe that. He's not going to examine me according to the decrees of God. He's going to examine me according to his commands. What did he command? Believe on Jesus. Pray without ceasing. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, see. So whether or not I can solve that problem, and probably nobody can. Whether or not I solve it doesn't alter the fact that I am responsible. Now you say, well, why are you talking about this? Why I'm talking about this is because this comes up all the time. It's abroad in our nation today and in our city. And because young people are going to go through this wrestle with this problem. And I have to help them as best I can when we teach systematic theology. They all face it. These are truths that are taught in the Bible. And as Dr. Schaefer, uh, Dr. Scope used to pray over Dr. Schaefer, I think this is a good prayer. Lord, give this young man balance. 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 I believe the decrees of God, but I am to obey the commands of God. When I get to heaven, God's not going to examine me on the decrees, but on the commands. Did I believe in Christ? Did I pray without ceasing? Did I yearn for holiness of life? Did I seek to witness for Christ in carrying the gospel? All right, let's go on to the third thing here. The second thing, and that's the petition. Acts chapter 2, verse 29 and 30, the petition. First, the invocation. They called upon God as the God of creation, the God of revelation, and the God of fulfillment. Number two, they petitioned God. They asked God for something. Verse 29 and 30. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants the first picket out of Jerusalem. By stretching forth thy hand. I, they prayed for three things here. Now look at it and see if you can tell me what they prayed for. Prayed for three things. What's the first thing they asked God to do? Behold their threat. Look, look, look on their threatenings. 
What's the second thing? Grant, grant gifts to thy servants boldness to preach. And the third one is found in a preposition. It's the second word of verse 30. What is it? Stretching forth, vindicate thy servant. Vindicate them. So he prayed for three things. First, look. Second, grant. Third, vindicate. First, look. Look, see what grace your servants need. Look on their threatenings and see what grace, what your servants need by the way of grace. Because you have promised that whatever our needs be, your grace will be adequate. So look on their threatenings and see what your servants need. Secondly, <clears throat> give to your servants boldness. That's beautiful, isn't it? They didn't pray for success. They didn't pray for security. They prayed for boldness. They said, don't preach. That was said, do preach. Now, if we're going to preach, Lord, we're all cowards by nature. We're all timid by nature. We're all cowards. We need your boldness. Give us, Lord, therefore, boldness. Then, Lord, if we could ask more than one thing, since all servants come in three points, we're going to ask for three things. Not only look on your servants and not only give them boldness, but vindicate thy servants. Verse 30. By stretching forth your hand to heal and signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. Vindicate it. Now, third, the answer, the prayer. First, the invocation. Second, the petition. Third, the answer. And God gave him a three-fold answer. Now, this is a homiletician's dream, isn't it? Three major points and three points under each one. But as a matter of fact, that's the way it is. I he answered by doing three things. Verse 31. When they prayed, what's the first thing? Place was shaken. Number two, what's the second answer? They were all filled with the Spirit. And number three, they spoke the word with, what did they pray for? What did they ask for? And what did God give them? Boldness. Three things. God's answer, three things. First, an outward experience. The place where they were was shaken. Now, I noticed they weren't shaken. They weren't up, jumping up and down, see, and running around. They weren't shaken. The place was shaken. Well, you, you say, why was the place shaken? Well, it wasn't an earthquake. The place was shaken. I think God supernaturally shook the place, and he did so to demonstrate uh, visibly so he could experience it. That adequate power was given to witness. Now, I don't think God is going to do that today. Now, if he wants to, he will. But you notice they didn't pray for it, did they? So don't pray for it. Don't pray that God will shake this place. They didn't. They prayed for boldness, and God shook it. Why did he shake it? Well, I think he shook it in the, you know, in the life of the early church at this point. God did these things. Because they needed, before having the full New Testament, they needed these audible, visible, outward experiences. So God shook the place as a demonstration of the power inwardly that he was going to give them. So the place was visibly shaken. But they did not pray for it. So don't pray for it, and don't wait for it to happen. 
And if it does happen, get in the storm shelter. <laughs> I don't think it will. I tend not to believe that's what it's going to be. <laughs> What's the second thing that happened? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now look at Acts chapter 2 quickly. Will you please? Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, chapter 2, verse 4. What happened to these disciples in Acts 2, 4? Filled with the Holy Spirit. They are filled with, look at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts 4, 8. What happened to Peter and probably John? They were what? So they are filled with the Spirit the second time. The same ones who were filled in Acts 2 are now filled the second time. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 31. What happens to them in Acts 44, 31? Filled again. How many times were Peter and John filled with the Holy Spirit? Three times. How many times were they baptized by the Holy Spirit? Once. Only once. Only once. Only once do I need to be joined vitally to Christ, which is the baptism of the Spirit. But I need the filling many times. What is the filling of the Holy Spirit? The filling with the Holy Spirit, not of, but the filling with the Holy Spirit is simply the unhindered control of my life by the Holy Spirit. If a man is, a man is uh, filled with hate, he's controlled by hate. If a man is filled with whiskey, he's controlled by whiskey. If a man is filled with lust, he's controlled by love. If a man is filled with the Spirit, then he's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Well, how is a man filled with the Spirit? How is a believer filled? Primarily, all boils down to one thing. Obedience. Obedience. As I walk in obedience to the Word and will of God, then I'm filled with the Spirit. When I walk in a path of disobedience, now are you listening? I lose the filling with the Spirit. Do I lose the Spirit? No. But I lose His control. Why? Because I lose some of my life under my control. Not under His control. Therefore, I can't be filled with the Spirit. And it's a growing thing. I'm saved, and I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm walking with the Lord. I read something of the Bible. And I find out, my, here's another area of my life that I need to dedicate to the Lord. Now, I raise the crisis. If I give this area to the Lord, then I continue filled with the Spirit. If I don't, then I lose the filling. Don't lose the Holy Spirit, but I lose His control of my life. And the filling with the Spirit, my friends, is the secret to all blessing and power joy in the Christian life. I'm going to close with this. There are three things we need to distinguish. Matter of fact, I spoke on this to the state convention of Gideon Jackson a while back and asked to speak at the other state convention on the same subject. And we got to distinguish between three things. Are you listening? We'll be finished. Make a couple announcements over. We must distinguish between the baptism of the Spirit and spiritual gifts and the filling with the Spirit. The baptism with the Spirit is that great spiritual transplant by which God takes me out of the old Adam and joins me 
eternally to Christ as the arm in the body, as the vine is in the branch, as the branch is in the vine, so I have been placed into Christ. And that placing of me into Christ, that transplant is called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And baptism with the Holy Spirit makes spiritual Christian service possible. Secondly, there's spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. The gift of administration, the gift of helps, the gift of encouragement, the gift of teaching the Word of God. Every Christian here has a spiritual gift. The spiritual gift gives me the direction of my Christian service. Third, there's the filling with the Holy Spirit. And the filling with the Holy Spirit makes my Christian service effective and fruitful. So the baptism with the Spirit makes Christian service possible. I can't serve God until I'm saved. The spiritual gifts gives me the direction of my Christian service, my work for the Lord. And we all got a spiritual gift, see? That means we're all in the work of the Lord. Third, the filling with the Holy Spirit makes Christian service effective and fruitful. And a man can be dynamic and powerful and fluent and have visible results and not be filled with the Spirit. Man can preach and souls can be saved. And that man that's preaching may not be filled with the Spirit. Filling with the Holy Spirit gives ultimate fruitfulness to the work of God. 